Amen to that. You guys can go and have a seat. Thank you for singing the gospel to me this morning. I love that. I love the fact that before I get up to open the word for you and hopefully proclaim Christ to you faithfully, uh, you guys do it for me as we sing songs, not only lifting them to God, but also to sing to one another and encourage one another in Christ. Um, as you guys get seated and get settled in, if you guys want to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 4, that's where we're going to be picking up today, starting in verse 7. And we've been marching through this book for a little while now. Ecclesiastes is a pretty unique book in Scripture. Uh, and it really, what it does is it really kind of exposes life in this world. Life in this world under the curse for sin, right? And, and really apart from, largely apart from the intervention of God. What is life in this world broken by sin like if God doesn't intervene? Uh, and that's what we've been seeing and what's been, um, that the teacher in Ecclesiastes has been exposing for us. And last week we saw how this bore out in human relationships. Um, and what we saw is that sin brought about this proclivity in the human heart to not to love and care for other, other human beings, other image bearers, but instead to use them, to take advantage of them, to, to essentially manipulate them for our own gain. In, in big ways, small ways, all sorts of different ways. But this is what our sin, this is what our flesh, what it tends to do towards other people because of our sin. And we've all experienced this in different ways. We've all experienced the pain that can come in human relationships in this world. And we've all caused pain in relationships with other people by our own sin, by the way that we've treated people in this way. And I think in light of that, it's very easy to perhaps conclude that maybe the best move in this world, if sin has so infected things, that maybe the best thing to do is to isolate. Maybe the best thing to do is just to, to kind of distance yourself from everybody else so they don't hurt you and you don't hurt them. Don't engage. Cut yourself off from others who might cost you and just focus on kind of taking care of yourself. Run towards individualism. Maybe that's the answer. Self-protect so you can't be hurt. Well, this is kind of a pendulum swing from what we saw last week, right? Last week we saw how our sinful heart wants to exploit people, and now we're swinging the other way. Like, well, if that's how things go, when we engage with each other, maybe it should just not engage at all. So we're now on this end of the spectrum, maybe thinking maybe that's the answer. Maybe we should just recoil and disconnect from people altogether. But that side of the pendulum is just as far from God's design as what we looked at last week. Both of those responses lead us away from God's provision and design for us, particularly as it comes to relating to one another. For all the risk that community and friendship carries with it, with the way other sinners can hurt us and with the way that we can hurt them as sinners ourselves, we still need it. It's still part of the way that God designed us to function and to work. And that's where the passage today is gonna press us, right? The, the teacher here, who's writing from Solomon's perspective, he's not gonna let us swing to that other pendulum and say, okay, I can just go be hyper-individualistic and just not deal with anybody anymore and be okay that way. He's gonna warn us against the dangers of individualism 
And he's gonna remind us of the benefits, the great rich benefits that we are intended to reap from not being alone. And that's ultimately gonna drive us to look forward to Jesus and to see how he is our true friend, our true friend, and what that means for us as we relate as people, particularly as this church. Let's go ahead and read Ecclesiastes 4, 7 through 16. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. For his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A three-fold cold is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let me pray for us. Lord, we ask for your help this morning. We know that it takes your spirit to help us to rightly understand your word. Uh, and even more than rightly understanding it, to have it uh, pierce our hearts and deal with us the way that it needs to. Uh, we know that our flesh is still here and still leads us in directions that are contrary to your design for us. And we know that we need your spirit's work in us to make us uh, long to respond to your word the way that you would have us. So we pray that your word would go forward in power today, that you would accomplish all that you intend to through it. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this passage really is, it's comprised of three pretty distinct sections. Uh, these three um, very obvious breaks, and they're like different little mini stories, essentially. These little mini narratives that each have their own intended purpose. But they're all driving at one thing when we see what they actually mean. So the first one and the last one are cautionary tales. They're short accounts of, of lives that do not pay off in the end. Like lives that we might be tempted to pursue, lives that we might be tempted to run down, but don't ultimately deliver. These lives are what the teacher calls havel. This, this word in Hebrew that means like a vapor. They, they don't deliver on what they promise. They look solid, but you can't grab onto them. They're fleeting. They vanish in an instant. They don't pay off. They're futile. But this first and this last cautionary tale that warn us about things to avoid drive us towards the truth of the middle section where the preacher tells us of the benefits of not being alone. So what I want to do is I want to walk through those first and last sections first and see what this passage is warning us against. And then we'll pick up that middle one that kind of answers those warnings. So the first tale that we see that the teacher tells us, the first picture he paints for us is found in verses seven and eight. He says, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, 
either brother or son, yet there is no end to all his toil, for his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is vanity and an unhappy business. So we're first presented with a man who basically has, has, has no connections with other people. Right? We read that he doesn't have a father or brother. That's particularly significant because those are the guys who would inherit when he dies anything that he accumulated if he doesn't have children, which is pretty clear from the context that he doesn't. So basically, there's nobody who would benefit from his material wealth that he's actually connected to. All right, so this is a guy who has, has no connections. Nobody's going to benefit from everything that he's doing, and yet he is slaving away, grinding away to make as much as he possibly can. He, he's minimized his connections with people so he can optimize his life for productivity, essentially, in this case, in terms of money and material things. This right, is a little bit like, um, you guys have probably heard this quote from John D. Rockefeller, very rich guy back in the day, he, his wealth equated to 1% of the entire economy of the US at his peak. Dwarfs anybody now in terms of percentage of what's out there. And he was asked, how much is enough? And he said, just a little bit more, right? That's, an, that's the picture of this guy. He's striving away. He has more than he could ever need. There's nobody that's gonna benefit from the overflow of what he has, and yet he cannot stop going after more. His whole life is oriented around building things up in this life. He's so busy grinding for gain and going after the stuff that he doesn't even bother to stop and think about why he's doing this. Like, what, what's, what's the point? What's the point of spending myself for all that? What, what's going on? Like, I'm not enjoying anything. I'm grinding so hard and working so hard. There's no joy in anything I'm doing. Nobody else is going to benefit from it. But he is so myopically focused on accumulating and gaining things that he hasn't even had the space to think about why he's doing it. He's just doing it and doing it and doing it. He's really presented like a slave. He's a slave to his eyes. He's a slave to his desires, his need for more. He can't do anything but pursue it at all costs. So he's really cut out from his life everyone who would drain his resources. There's nobody to lead, nobody's benefiting from his work Nobody's gaining from it. Nobody's going to inherit it when he's gone. He's optimized his life for gaining worldly things. And in doing so, he's cut himself off from actually enjoying it. And that enjoyment would largely come from sharing it, right? Think about where does our joy come in, in the things of this world? It's almost always in conjunction with sharing it with somebody else. The best meals I've had have not been alone, Right? They've been when I've shared it with somebody. The best experiences I've had have been with other people. Right? This is part of the reason we like social media. We can share things with people even when they're not there. We know that like, this is where the joy comes in things is largely from when we get to share that experience with other people. This guy has completely missed it. This is very, very much like the Christmas Carol, right? the Charles Dickens deal. This, this guy is Scrooge. Like Dickens could have just ripped this off from here. You guys remember the story? We're a couple months out from Christmas, but it's probably still fresh enough, right? There's this old rich miser. He pinches every penny, right? He's, he's ruined all of his relationships over trying to save as much money as he can. And he's utterly miserable, but he's just doing everything he can to shave off all those margins until he's finally given the gift of 
being exposed to that question that this guy never asks. Why am I doing this for? What am I doing this for? What is this costing me? This guy is Scrooge. He's optimized his life for production by cutting himself off from the very things that would make all this effort, all this work actually satisfying and actually enjoyable. And we can do this with things beyond just money. We can do this with power, with position, with achievement of all sorts, with approval even. There are all sorts of things we can sacrifice people to optimize our lives to pursue. People are used as a means to some end rather than the things being used to be enjoyed and to serve people. Things are loved, people are used rather than things being used and people being loved. It's inverted and backwards and broken. And in the words of the teacher here, it's, it's Havel, it's vanity, it's futile. It's, it's so inside out and so broken and twisted to be utterly meaningless. Now, this is a very direct kind of form of individualism. But there are other less straightforward ways we can do something very similar. And we see this in our second warning, the, this, the little vignette that closes our passage. Pick up with me in verse 13. There we read, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to throne, though he, in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. And there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. So we have another way of life that is also Havel, that's also futile and pointless. But this one's a little less straightforward. If you heard that and you're a little, in the first thing that pops in your head is question marks, you are in good company. Uh, everybody has a hard time understanding what exactly the, the teacher is getting at here. Um, it's, we don't know whether it's because of the language is unclear or if we're just so distant from his time that, that the force of it is not obvious to us. But I think when we get down to the core, when we actually look at it, the best I can tell from my work on it is that it's, primarily cautions us against the way pride isolates us, the way pride and arrogance isolates us. So the picture is this, there's a, there's a rich old king, right? and by all standards in his culture, this sh guy should be revered, right? He has all the trademarks that, that bring you to high social standing, right? Money, power, he's a king, and age. You know, nowadays we like to be young, back in this day and age, being old was preferred. That was a higher social standing. Age was respected and honored and revered. So this king, that's like, I, he should has all the things that would, re, that would lead people to follow him, to honor him, all those sorts of things. But we read there's one thing lacking. He's a fool. He's a fool. And what he's tied to his foolishness is the fact that he can no longer hear counsel. He can no longer hear counsel. He has grown proud and arrogant after his rise to where he no longer feels the need of any kind of input of others into his life. All right, so he has grown proud and arrogant. There are people around him, unlike the first guy, who just kind of cut everybody off, there's people around him, but he no longer sees the need for them. He's arrived, so he doesn't actually let them in in any practical, functional way into his life. 
And the teacher tells us that makes him a fool. So a new one has risen, right? Who has none of the things that should bring honor. He's young, he's poor, he's in prison, it says. But he is wise, and the people flock to him. Ultimately, what this is showing us is that we can be surrounded by people and we can still be alone. We do this by not acknowledging that we actually need people around us, that we are actually dependent on others, that we are not sufficient in and of ourselves, that they bring something to the table that we need. You can be surrounded by community, but if you do not let that community do what it is intended to do, you're still just as alone as the guy who cuts himself completely off. And there's another caution here too that isn't in the first one, and that's about the limits of community, especially when it is amongst sinners. The fact is the, the people that surround us, we can be a fickle bunch, right? This, this crowd, these people in the kingdom, they just leave the king and they glom on to the next the next thing, right? The next up and comer, the young, scrappy, hungry, new guy. They hop right on that train, right? Only to have another one rise in this place and they leave him and jump on the next one, right? So there's the warning against pride and the way that pride and arrogance doesn't allow us to truly be with other people the way that we need to be, the way that that makes us alone. But there's also this warning that, hey, people have their limitations. Sinful people are going to disappoint you as a community as well. So we need community. We need to not be alone. We need the things. We're dependent. But we've got this other side of this conundrum that, well, people are imperfect. People are going to fail you. Sometimes when you need them to be there, they won't be there. So how do we resolve this, right? We need community. But we have this problem in the fact that people are imperfect at providing what community is meant to, to bring. All right, so what these two warnings drive us to is the central point of this passage, and that is the benefits of being together with people, the benefits of not being alone. In verse 9, we read this, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another one to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A three-four cold is not quickly broken. Now, it's not obvious on the surface, but this whole section is really built on, on one motif, and that's a motif of travel. Right. Few things have changed as much in our world as travel has from the time this was written till now. We don't think twice about traveling. We get on a plane and we fly halfway across the world and it's like nothing. Like it's, it's easy. It takes a little bit of money, but it's, it's really, it's barely even stressful. The hardest part is standing in line for TSA, right? Like it's that simple. Travel was not that way during the time this was written. Travel was one of the most dangerous things you could engage in for a lot of reasons. And to travel alone was particularly dangerous. It's not something you do voluntarily. It would be, it's like a, de it's a desperate thing. It's something that a poor person or somebody would do out of utter desperation. It's so easy for us to miss this because things have changed so much. But it's an incredibly appropriate, like, it helps us so much though because scripture describes us as Christians living in this broken fallen world as sojourners. 
That's the image of Christians living in this fallen world before God takes us home and brings us into glory. We are sojourners, right? We are on a journey. We are traveling through a foreign country. We are not home, right? And so I love the fact that the Holy Spirit led the preacher to use this particular motif because it connects it so directly to, to us as Christians living in this broken world. So let's walk to, through these benefits that the preacher says that, that come from being together, from not being alone. And he says at first that it's, it helps to have two better than one because they have, great, they have reward from being partnered together. And then he walks out what those rewards are. He says, if one falls, the other one is there to lift him up. Right? This seems a little simplistic at first. We think of somebody tripping on the sidewalk or something, we lift up their hand. This is more than that, right? Things have changed so much. Roads were not great back then. That changed a lot when Rome came. This is before Rome even did their road thing. If there's even a road to travel on, it's not very good. It's going to be rough and dangerous, right? There's not street lights. So if you're traveling, move around in the dark and everything, very easy to end up in a really bad spot, right? There's no 911 to call if you fall and get hurt. You fall somewhere and you break your leg, you're laying there with a breaking leg. There's, there's nobody's coming. All right, so to fall, it means something very different than maybe what first pops into our head. This is a very significant thing. You get injured on the road, you're completely at the mercy of somebody happening to come by and that person happening to be merciful and gracious and taking time out of their own dangerous, fraught journey to help you. Think about that parable of the Good Samaritan, right? So, but if you have another with you, you fall, you trip, you sprain your ankle, somebody can pull, reach down, lift you up, help you keep going, put a splint on, whatever you need. There's somebody who's not hurt, who's not down in the pit, who can help you continue. All right, okay, the next one. He talks about how when there's two instead of one, they can keep each other warm by laying next to each other. Right? When you're traveling, there's not hotels at every highway exit. Right? That's just not how things went. Every once in a while, there's some inns and things like that, but you can't count on that. Most of the time, you're sleeping out under the stars, in the elements, whatever those happen to be. And maybe you've got stuff to have a fire or something like that, but maybe not. There's not a whole lot of wood in the Middle East. It's not like loaded with that kind of stuff. And there's good reasons to maybe not want to light a fire because there's people who want to do you harm out on the road. We'll get to that in a minute. So what the one source of heat you always have is another person. It's a 98 degree space heater, right? Like that, like literally, I mean, I've done this when I was in the Marines. I cuddled up with some guys for heat, right? When it's 13 degrees and raining and you can't light a fire because you don't want to get bombed, this is such a gift, right? And this, so that's the point. There's this incredible comfort when you're out and you're subject to the elements and there's potentially nothing else to bring comfort, this other person can bring warmth. So much in it's in the desert and in the desert temperatures plummet at night, like massive temperature swings. So that's that picture. We have this, this travel picture. Lastly, it talks about how one person can be overpowered, but if there's two, you can resist the attack. More things that are different, right? There's no law enforcement. Law enforcement looks nothing like it does now. Maybe in some cities you've got some stuff if there's somebody who rules there, but it's very hit and miss. And there's nothing out on the road. Your protection is completely your responsibility. It's all on you. And so um, 
Yeah, and when you, if you're by yourself and you're asleep, you're a sitting duck. Right? There's a reason when I was in the military, there's never a time when everybody's asleep. Somebody's always up watching. If you're by yourself, you can't do that. You're going to get too tired. Your vigilance is going to wane, and you're going to be vulnerable. Armed robbery was very much the norm when you traveled. It was something you had to plan for and expect to come your way when you traveled back in this day. So the preacher's using what travel is like to to just draw out the benefits of why we need something more than ourselves, right? We need comfort from other people. We need help from other people. There are things that we cannot do in and of ourselves, and we need this strength that comes from being bound together with others, right? We are not self-sufficient. We were not designed to be self-sufficient. We need the help and comfort and strength of others. But here again, we run up into that conundrum that I already talked about, right? We need these things. We need help, comfort, strength outside of ourselves, but (laughs) we're sinners, right? Who who says that we're gonna deliver when we need those things, right? Who says that we're, I'm gonna come through for you? If I'm in your community and you do fall, am I gonna be there? Maybe I will, maybe I won't. When you're attacked, maybe I get scared and run away. Like, there's no guarantees with us. As the king in that last story learned when everybody abandoned him. So how do we reconcile these two things? We need help outside of ourselves. And yet, we are left with fallen, sinful, broken people who will fail us, who will not be perfect. Can these things be reconciled? Or are we left to pick our poison, right? Either between the, the dangers of, okay, I'm just gonna be individualistic, do my own thing. If it gets me, it gets me, but I'm gonna pick that way. Or, all right, I'm gonna trust these people and I might get burned. Are those are two options. Is it between the dangers of individualism or the pain of failed friends? No. There, there is something else. This, this whole problem gets unlocked. We get out of this dilemma when we look beyond what Solomon could see and we look to Jesus. Because right, Jesus is the true and sufficient friend who never fails, who never leaves or forsakes us, and who changes the color and tone and tenor of all our human relationships as well. And I want to walk this guys out for you through these, these categories that Solomon has given us. I already talked about how we are aliens and sojourners in this world. This world is not our home. We are on a journey to another place that Jesus has prepared for us. Our citizenship is in heaven, right? And as we sojourn through this world, we would be utterly lost without Jesus, the the friend of sinners. He was, of course, called that in mockery by the Pharisees as if it was a derogatory thing. But we know that it is his glory to save sinners, to make enemies his friends. And so the first and foremost place we start with this need of something outside of ourself is that we must be joined, we must not be alone, we must be joined in union to Jesus, the perfect friend of sinners. There's no hope of a good outcome on this sojourn of life apart from him. This world and our sin would absolutely devastate us. But I wanna show you how, how Jesus 
answers each of these categories and what he's done so beautifully and so wonderfully without fail. So Solomon talks about how two, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Labor talks about work, right? Well, this is awesome, right? Because what has our work earned? What has our labor earned? What do we bring to the table in terms of work that makes God happy? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. We bring debt. We bring, we bring utter debt and loss. We are sinners. We are totally destitute of righteousness before God. All right, but join to Jesus. What does Jesus bring to the table? What has his work earned and won? Infinite riches, infinite righteousness. When you add what Jesus' work has earned to our debt, we are left with an infinite store, an inexhaustible store of perfect righteousness before the Father. Right? When we are joined to him, all of our flaw, all of our weakness, all of our sin, all the falling short of God's glory that we do is met and surpassed by what Jesus has accomplished in his work. His work is so profitable that it satisfies our debt in full and fills our account with the righteousness that we can never exhaust. Right? We have a good reward when we are joined with Christ, not because our effort is added to his, but in spite of our efforts, in spite of the negative value we bring to that. Jesus overcomes it and reconciles us to God through his righteousness, through his work alone. Solomon also said that if we fall, the one will be able to lift up his fellow if we are not alone. I love that he used fall because fall is one of the ways we talk about sin. Right? We talk about that initial sin in the garden as the fall into sin. And it's a useful picture. We fall into this pit, right? We fall into this pit that we cannot escape. And the fall into sin was not a twisted ankle. It didn't bring a broken leg. It was a fatal fall, right? Jesus just doesn't give us a hand up, right? Reach down and help us get to the top of the pit. He has to go down into the pit and pick up a lifeless corpse, carry it back to the top and breathe life into it. That is the depth of a fall and that is the depth to which Jesus came to bring us up from it. He woes down to where we fall and he brings our spiritually lifeless bodies up from the pit and regenerates them. He passed through death to bring us from death to life. Right? Then Solomon talked about the fact that we, when we're not alone, there's comfort, right? Because we can lay together and keep warm. Ecclesiastes has been so stark. It's like, it's like cold water on your face in terms of just the reality of the hardships of this world, how difficult it is, how painful it can be. Right? Living here under this curse, everything seems to work against our peace and comfort. But what Jesus told his disciples before he left is that he had to go so that he could send the comforter, right? His leaving wasn't really his leaving. His leaving physically was so that he could send his Holy Spirit to actually indwell his people, not to just be outside of them, to actually be in them. And one of the Holy Spirit's names is the comforter. He's given to us for our comfort and for our sustainment in this life that is so hard and so difficult, and comes with so many sorrows, and so many tears, and so many struggles. When Jesus said he would never leave us or forsake us, this is what he was talking about. 
He was talking about sending his spirit to fill us so that no matter what we walk through, no matter what difficulties we face, we are never without a comforter. We are never without a comforter. That is his promise and his gift to us. We have it better than the disciples did when they walked with Jesus and ate with him. He told them it was better for him to go. We have it better than they did because we are indwelled by his very spirit who comforts and ministers and cares for us. Lastly, that last category Solomon talks about, being able to stand up to an attack, right? One might be overpowered, but two can withstand, two can withhold. Right, our sojourn through this life, it's not a walk in the park. Scripture is very clear. We are in a spiritual battle. We are in a spiritual war. We walk through this in details when we preach through Ephesians. Right, in Ephesians 5, Paul goes into great detail about this war that we're in. Our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces and powers. And what does Satan want to do more than anything else? He wants to undermine your faith. He wants you to not trust Jesus. That's the biggest win for Satan. That's what he's after. And in Ephesians 5, we see this beautiful passage about the armor of God, right? This is God's armor that he gives us. And if you go through those things, if you want to go back and listen to my sermon on it, you can. I can't, don't have time to do everything with it. But the armor that we put on is nothing less than Jesus himself. Every one of those armor pieces are work that Jesus accomplished for us. It's stuff that he has done. He just doesn't come alongside and fight with us. He is everything. He guards us and protects us from every aspect of that spiritual battle. He keeps us safe by his righteousness, by the gift of faith, by his sword of the spirit, by the helmet of his salvation, by his gospel of peace. It's all his work, his stuff. It's nothing that we do. It's resting and trusting and hiding behind the shelter that is him and his finished work. So we are safe against any assault. There is nothing that can overcome that armor because it is not ours, it is his. It is the perfect finished work of Jesus. So it doesn't matter if one comes against us or a thousand, the entire spiritual hosts can come against us. They cannot overcome the work of Jesus Christ. His name is greater than all. Jesus is the true friend, the friend that we have to have. The friend that if we have him, even if everybody else deserts us, we're okay. We're okay. We have what we need. Not because we're good enough. Not because we can be independent and we're fine on our own. That's not it at all. But because he is completely and totally sufficient in what he has accomplished and done for us. But now the beautiful thing about this is, this doesn't mean that we just go off and do me and Jesus. Right? A big part of the way that he cares for us, a big part of the way that he brings us to bear on our lives is now through people. Through this work that he's done, he didn't just reconcile us to God, he reconciled us to each other. He didn't just save us on our own, he saved us into a church, into a family, into one body. And so a huge way that he cares for us as we sojourn and we go through the difficulties of this life is through the brothers and sisters that he's given us, is through the church. Everything we need is ultimately provided by him. It's through what he has accomplished. But he reconciled us to God and one another. So much so that we, we're closer than friends. We're closer than family. We're part of the same organism. Right? We, Christ is our head and we are all part of the same body. And it's not just for this life. It's for eternity. If you're in Christ, we're stuck with each other forever. 
better get used to each other now, right? Like, that's true. We are relationship together is, is just beginning. It's going to go on forever. And this is the way Christ manifests his love to us. One of the main ways is by giving us each other. Christ accomplished everything, but we now get the privilege of ministering Christ to each other, right? We don't die for people's sins. We don't do all those things that Jesus talked about, but we get to minister that work to each other. This is what it means to be a priesthood of believers. We get to minister the work of Christ to one another within the church, all right, so I'm going to walk through those categories again, but this time in light of the church and, and God's design for us together as a community. All right, so Solomon talked about having a good reward for laboring together, having two rather than one. The, the American church is such an individualistic idea of the Christian life that is not biblical at all. The Christian life is a corporate reality. You are joined to a body you are not sufficient. You need everybody in Christ's church, and they need you. You cannot say to any part of the body, I don't need you. Appendix, I don't need you. Foot, I don't need you. Paul's so clear about this in Corinthians. God is sovereign. Everybody he put in his church, he put there for a reason. He gifted them with what he gave them. All their strengths and weaknesses, their flaws, their quirks, the things you like, the things you don't like, he put that person there. And that means you need them and they need you. A lot of times I think we think about the church almost as like a gym, right? You go to the gym and everybody's kind of doing, they're doing their own thing, right? Somebody's on this, everybody's working out, but we're just kind of doing our thing, right? Some people have a Craig over there, they're training with somebody, right? They're doing some of that, but you know, everybody's just kind of in there doing their thing. That's not what the church is. The church is a team, right? It's much more like a football team. We got to practice. We're doing things together. We're all pulling towards one ultimate goal. We're just not all trying to get PRs on different lifts, doing our own thing, right? It's not about our personal climbing the holiness ladder. It's about what God has called us together as the church. Your holiness, your trust and faith in Christ should matter to me just as much as mine does. I should be able to rejoice in your growth, in your deepening understanding, in your victory over sin, in your comfort, just as much as my own, because we are part of the same body. This is why we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, right? Christian, true Christian piety is outward facing. It looks up to God for the sufficiency of Christ and then it looks out to neighbor to love them. If you've got a piety that is inward facing, that's turned in on itself and overly obsessed with personal benchmarks, that is not Christian piety. God did not save you to turn you in on yourself. He saved you to lift your eyes to him in worship and to your neighbor in love, right? And the church, we, some, this is just our culture. Our culture is so individualistic, but it has seeped into the church so much. We just think our Christian walk is about our walk. It's not. Our, the Christian life is about us. It's about us. And that really changes the way we, we look at everything. Right? The church is effective when we use the gifts God has given together for the ends that God intends, which is the proclamation of the gospel, resting and trusting in Christ and loving those around us. All right, Solomon again, he said, if one falls, another will pick him up. In this broken world, in this world under the sun, struggle is a part of the Christian life. Right? There's no, we're saved and now we just kind of float six feet above all the trouble and brokenness of this world. We absorb just as much of it as everybody else does. Jesus told his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. 
right? When we, when we think not, we're, we're bringing glorification. We're, we're over-realized eschatology. We're bringing what God's going to do at the end, and we're trying to import it into now. And that's just not the case. Right now, we are going to have struggles, including struggles with sin and temptation. We're not going to be perfect here in this world. We're going to suffer. We can struggle without an unbelief. We can struggle with temptation and sin. But that is precisely why we are brought into a body, right? The church is not a country club for self-righteous people who don't struggle anymore. The church is a hospital for sinners, right? If you cannot come to church and be honest about your sin, there's something deeply wrong. This should be the one place we can be honest about sin because this is the one place that can actually deal with sin because we have the gospel, because we have the work of Jesus. Listen to Paul's words from Galatians 6. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourselves lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And just, just think about that church. Like, I want to be a church who does this, right? I want to be a church where people know that if they bring their sin to light, they are not going to be looked down on by a bunch of people who think they're better than they are, but where we want to run to that person, put our arms around them, and help them and care for them in the midst of their sin. That is what we are called to do, right? How many times have you been afraid to admit your sin because you're afraid what's going to happen? You're afraid of how people are going to respond, Listen to how we're called to respond. You who are spiritual. This doesn't mean self-righteous. This means filled with the Holy Spirit, which is not marked by self-righteousness. It's marked by humility and a true understanding that you yourself are a sinner and you're totally dependent on Jesus, just like everybody else. And you restore in a spirit of gentleness. And we bear each other's burdens, right? Like, I think about this in light of my time in the Marine Corps and how seriously we took somebody getting wounded or hurt or even killed, like we, nobody ever got left alone, ever. If they were dead, we got them and somebody stayed with them till they got put in the ground. How much more so should the church do that? And how many times do we end up just shooting our wounded instead because we don't want to walk with them and carry their burdens and go through the hard, messy stuff of helping somebody who's caught in sin. We'd rather just shoot them and move on. It happens, it's grievous. It grieves the heart of God. That is not what we are here for. Solomon goes on to talk about how two can lie together to keep warm. Right, so not only do we stumble, struggle and stumble and fall sometimes, we also just suffer. We just suffer through not sin, but just the brokenness of life. Dreams die. People die. People get sick. Our bodies break down. There are so many things Things don't live up to expectations. Relationships are hard. Things don't go the way that we hoped or imagined. Life disappoints our expectations. Pain shows up in all sorts of ways in this world. Listen to these words from Paul in 2 Corinthians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. Not only do we come alongside those who are struggling with sin, we come alongside those who are hurting for any reason whatsoever, right? And we comfort and care the best way we know how. Even if all we can say is, hey, you don't have to do this alone. 
Sometimes that's all we can do. Sometimes it's all we can offer, but we at least offer that. Right? God has comforted us so that we can be a comfort to the other person. If we can warm them up a couple degrees on a frigid night in this broken world, that is what God has called us to do. Right? That's what we're here for. We're here to comfort and love and care for one another. And then ultimately, the last one. Two will be able to withstand the one when attacked. And it's hard to overstate how vulnerable we are by ourselves. We have so many blind spots in so many ways. We get preached all sorts of things by the world, by the devil, by our flesh, things that undermine our faith and trust in God. We are so good at justifying sin. We're so good at talking ourselves into all sorts of things. So many deep heretical errors in the church have come up from people just going off and doing stuff by themselves and not having the questions and the accountability and the help that comes from having a community around that watches your blind spots. You are not meant to do this world alone. Like I, in, in the military, we don't even talk about doing things alone. We don't even have a category. We have no tactical class about how to do things alone. Movies really skew this, right? Where there's the one guy who does crazy stuff and saves the day. We don't even have that. We learn how to do some basic things and everything after that is how to work together. Everything is done in at least twos. You always have somebody who watches your back because we know you can't see everything. You are so vulnerable by yourself and it is no different spiritually. The strongest and best among us have such big blind spots. We need help. It's arrogance and pride that makes us think we're good and we see everything clearly. We don't. We don't. We need the help of a church. We need the help of people who can see things in our lives, who know us well enough to maybe know when something's off, right? That we can have accountability for the things that we believe and trust. They can be honed and sharpened against other aspects of the church. We need this. It is, (laughs) there's nothing Satan likes more than to isolate a Christian. Then he's got it easy. 90% of the work's done. All right, church, I'm going to wrap us up here. Now, there's, there's a danger when we look at something like this. To, to hear this, to hear the way that, that we can love and care for each other, the way that we're called to in Christ, and then immediately look at those around us and think about the ways that they have been imperfect and failed in doing this for us, right? To, to think about those, oh, yeah, I would love to be loved like this. And nobody's doing it for me. Like, this person hasn't done it. This person failed to do it. Like, we are so naturally selfish, right? We want all this care and everything else like that. And so that's where we can easily run to. And that is such a dangerous place to be, to look at everybody else's imperfections and failures. It will lead you to see yourself as too good for the church, right? No church is good enough for you. Nobody loves you well enough. And it will in turn lead you to isolation, like Scrooge, you'll see it as too costly, or like the king, you'll see yourself as above it. And we need to realize, guys, this, this friendship that we talked about, that, that is possible in the church, this community that we are called to be, that God has made us in Christ, we don't deserve this. You don't deserve to be loved like that. I don't deserve to have anybody come alongside me and love me and pick me up when I fall. I deserve hell and damnation. That's all I deserve. I don't deserve a single good thought or care from any of you. 
based on who I am. Every good thing I get, every ounce of care you guys give to me is a gift of sheer grace and mercy from the hand of God to a sinner who deserves nothing. And so you will love me imperfectly. I will love you imperfectly. But even for all of that, it it is so much more than I deserve, so much more than the world has. It's such a kindness. And the friendship of Christ is what allows you to do that, right? Because where his church falls short, where his church fails you, where you fail each other, we're young. We've only been together for eight months. We're going to do a lot more failing each other, right? We're in the honeymoon phase still. There's going to be hard things that we have to walk through, right? But what equips us and enables us to do that is for everywhere a person falls short and fails you in a way that you wanted to be loved or comforted or needed to be loved and comforted, Christ did not fail you. He may not have met that the way that you hoped through another person, but he has not forsaken you. He has not failed to care for you in that in any way. You will be cared for and kept. It just may not look the way that you meant. So that allows us to interact and engage with our brothers and sisters, imperfect as they are, and to receive what they try to do and the ways that they do love us with, great, with gratitude and thankfulness that somebody would love me and care for me and to know that Christ fills in everything that his bride may fail to do. You will lack nothing in Christ. And so church, um, this is a huge part of our witness to the world too, is the way that we love each other. Jesus said this, the the world will know your disciples by the way you love and care for one another. The way that we love each other within the church should echo the way that we are loved in Christ. Right? The way that we are gracious, the way that we can forgive each other's sin, the way that we can be gracious towards each other's faults, the ways that we will sacrifice and give to comfort and care for each other should tell the world something true about what Jesus has done for us. Our love flows downstream from his love. I love the parable he told about the servant who owed this insane amount of money. With inflation, I don't know what it is anymore. It's a lot more than it used to be, right? But this insane amount of money he could never repay. And he goes to the king and he says, just give me a little more time and I'll pay it off. And which is a totally a lie. There's no way he could ever pay off this debt. It's an, it's, it's an incalculable amount of money. But the king shows him mercy and grace and forgives him. Right? And then that servant goes and he finds another servant who owes him money, which is a much more sane amount, like $10,000, something like that. It's not, not something we wouldn't miss, but he pleads for the same thing. He says, give me a little bit more time, I'll pay you back. Well, that's very realistic. He probably could do that eventually. And the servant in turn... Um, is harsh with him, has him thrown in jail for not paying his debt back. And the king hears about it and calls the servant back and said, hey, I forgave you all this. Could you not forgive this of your, of your servant? And he has him thrown in jail and requires the whole debt of him. Now, the point of that parable is not to say we lose our salvation if we don't forgive somebody else perfectly, right? That's not the point. But the point is, if we have really been forgiven, if we really deeply understand the grace and mercy of God that we've received, it, it has to flow downstream to the way that we treat other people. How could I possibly be harsh with somebody who, who, well, not how could I possibly, but why should I ever be harsh with somebody who loves me imperfectly when I have been forgiven and loved in spite of just total affronts to God? I've been forgiven such a debt, and now I won't let this little thing go. I won't forgive this, this little thing that didn't line up, right? 
It's the grace and mercy of Jesus that, that should color and shape the way that we love and care for each other. And the way that we love and care for each other is a huge part of our witness to the community of the truth of the good news of the gospel that we proclaim. We have to proclaim it, but it should flow out into the way that we relate to each other. The way that we love and care for each other should be consistent with what we teach about the grace and mercy that we found. Jesus has not loved us and cared for us in proportion to what we are able to give back. We have nothing to give that he needs. Nothing to give that he needs. And church, I love the fact that we get to take communion today because I think there's this sacrament that God gave us is such a beautiful picture of, of the gift of being united to Christ and being united to one another. I'm gonna walk you guys through that in a minute, but right now we're gonna receive the elements. So this is a meal that's for Christ's church. Uh, so if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, please don't partake. It's not for you. It will not benefit you. It only benefits those who take it in faith. Um, but as we, we're going to sing a verse or two, you can come get the elements. There's four stations around front corners and back corners as we sing. And then just hold on to it, and I'll come back and lead us through communion. The purple cups are grape juice. The clear cups are wine. Uh, so whichever you prefer. And the bread is on the bottom, so you only need to take one cup. So we'll sing, we'll get that, and I want to come walk you guys through how this is just a beautiful picture of God's grace and, and kindness to give us union with Christ, but also communion with one another. All right, so let's stand and sing. Let's thank, be thankful for the grace he's shown and prepare to receive communion.